0: Lord, we do praise you tonight. We praise you for your goodness, for what you've accomplished, what you're still going to accomplish, Lord. We look forward to the great things you have yet to do. Thank you that we can raise holy hands. Thank you that you are the one that made those hands holy. Without you, they wouldn't have been. They would have been wicked hands that we raised, and yet in your kindness and what you accomplished on the cross that we talked about last week, you made us holy. Not just positionally before the Father are we made holy, but you are actually transforming us by the power of your Spirit to really be holy people. Thank you that you're at work in our lives, Lord, that you have not left us as orphans, as you said in your last words to your disciples. Thank you for all that you've accomplished, Lord. Thank you for what you are still doing today. As we read John 19 tonight, Lord, would you give me the words, Holy Spirit, to speak what you have to say to your people? As we think about the secret disciples, the ones who throughout this gospel it looked like maybe they were never really disciples to begin with, we find out that when the time came, they revealed who they were. They showed the type of men they were, that they were faithful followers of you. Would we be encouraged by their example? Would we be reminded of the weight of your death? Will we be changed by looking at it tonight. In Jesus' name, thank you for sending your spirit. We, even today, look to the cross to see the blood and water pouring out for us. Thank you. Amen. 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 You have your Bibles tonight. We're in John 19, starting in verse 31. Last week, uh, as we all know, we had a special service, Or special candlelit service and re- reflected on Jesus' crucifixion and his death ending with him proclaiming that he has finished his work what he set out to do on the earth in his earthly life he had accomplished and therefore he was ready to die and so he of his own volition gave up his spirit it says in verse 30 and so we left off there Tonight I titled The Secret Disciples Made Known because we're finally going to come, one, back to the story of Nicodemus, who we've seen twice so far in the Gospel of John. Um, If you know your Gospels, this is the only Gospel that mentions Nicodemus at all. And Nicodemus is mentioned three times throughout this Gospel. And the other man we see is Joseph of Arimathea, who's actually honored in all four Gospels, mentioned who he is and what he did for Jesus And we're going to see who they are, and and, and really we're going to see what their discipleship was like in Jesus prior to his death, and how his death changed them, what they were willing to do when they saw the good and honorable man that they believed to be Messiah when he died the way they were willing to honor him. So verse 31 starts this way, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation... So that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So right from the beginning, as we've all seen, this is right on the edge of Passover, right? This this whole event is surrounded by what's happening with Passover. So this day of preparation is talking about the day as the lambs are prepared for Passover. And so because of that, it's a holy day, it's a high day, and, and remember, all Sabbaths were special days, all Sabbaths were holy days, but this is an extra holy day, because not only is it a Sabbath, but it's Passover. So it, it is supremely holy, right? It's not just Passover, it's not mm-hmm. just a Sabbath, it's the Sabbath of Passover. So this is an extremely important day. And the question arises, if you, if you think about this, why, why do they want to kill him so quick? What does that have to do with this high holy day? Um, this is an Old Testament answer, and tonight we're going to look at a, four different passages in the Old Testament as we look at backgrounds to what's going on in this relatively short section we're reading from John 19.31 to John 19.42. Now, this passage is going back to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy has something to say that's a, a, a verse that is not necessarily uh, talked about that many times in the New Testament, but often is alluded to, and it's about what it means for someone to hang on a tree. That's the terminology that the Old Testament uses in Deuteronomy, that hanging on a tree. And the one who was hung on a tree was, to, was accursed, right? Deuteronomy says that they were accursed by God. So the background for that is Deuteronomy 21 if you're filling out your notes it's Deuteronomy 21:22 21, 21:22 22. 21, 22. that's nice when they just write in order like that 21:22 mm-hmm. says this in 21:22 of Deuteronomy if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is a curse of God. You will bury him so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So why is it so important to get Jesus off the cross? Well, the reason is because they're saying since he's been hung on a tree, he is one cursed. But two, they don't want Jesus's cursed presence to defile the land of the Jews. And that's why it's so important to them to get these men off the cross. The Jews were required by biblical law, what we just read, to bury the crucified members and not leave them on through the night. But also, remember, they were accursed, and they did not want their land to be defiled. They did not want to become unclean. But even more so in light of Passover, right? in light of Passover in the Sabbath, this Sabbath Passover. So, it was required for them to get them down. Now, another viable question is, well, why? Would, what makes you think the Romans are going to listen to them? And that's a viable question. Why would the Romans care what the Jews think? They can do whatever they want. They're in power over them. But remember that these festivals were notoriously rebellious times. In fact, much of the religious fervor that was drummed up is around these special holidays, and... And Rome, to keep the peace, often would try to fulfill uh, special requests and special obligations during these festivals to appease the people, so that they would quell any unrest that would have happened in that time. So it's likely that when they go to Pilate to ask for these men's legs to be broken, um, Pilate is ready for them to to... to give them what they want, because he he wants to keep the peace. As you as we saw when we went through the crucifixion, um, Pilate ends up doing a lot of things he doesn't necessarily want to to keep the peace in the area. It's really a lot of pressure from the Jewish leaders that Pilate would do what they want. And so in light of this High Holy Day, uh, he wants to honor the Jewish law, the Jewish rules, that would not let them keep someone on a tree throughout the night. And so they... He he, uh, appeases their request. And so what's it say that happens? The soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. So when Jesus is pierced in the side with the spear, remember, he's hanging relatively low to the ground, and they pierce him, what? For what reason? They want to make sure he's dead. They don't break his legs, because it appears as if he's dead, but they pierce him to make sure he's dead. And blood and water flow out. What's interesting is um, there's been a lot made in commentaries and scholars to talk about the medical reality of whether that's possible, blood and water flowing out mixed. Um, And I I think there's been a consensus that it is possible, but what's interesting is in in the story of John, the literalness is not near as important, though I'm sure it did happen. The literalness is not near as important as the symbolic reality, the theological reality that John is trying to tell us consistently, consistently throughout this gospel, water has represented one thing. It's the Holy Spirit. Now remember, in the Gospel of John, what was the moment in John 7 that you had to wait for the Spirit to be poured out? He says explicitly in John 7 that the Spirit could not be poured out until Jesus was glorified. And in John, the moment of Jesus' glorification is crucifixion. So, there is a literal moment we'll read about later in John 20 in which the Spirit is breathed on the disciples, but this is also a symbolic moment showing that Jesus' death provides the Spirit. And if you don't believe me yet, when we get to the quotations, we'll go back to the Old Testament and look at what they have to say, and you'll, you'll understand why John uses that reality symbolically. You'll hear it when we get to Zechariah. But for now, just know That there's a symbolic nature. Yes, it probably literally happened. In fact, it's pretty clear that John believes it happened literally because he gives his seal of approval to it, doesn't he? He said, no, I was an eyewitness. I saw it happen. But there's also a theological weight to it, the blood and water. The blood is atonement, isn't it? Blood is consistently used as atonement throughout the New Testament. Jesus' blood gave us peace with God. It it made a payment for our ransom, for our redemption, right? And the blood and water symbolize the two things that Jesus offered us, atonement with God and pouring out of his Spirit on us. So there's a, a deep theological reality behind the literal reality of what happened so John gives his approval, of course this is a contested area in the Gospel of John because it's kind of ambiguous, but if you think to the end of the Gospel, when um, John says, I am, you know, the, the author, excuse me, the author says, I am the beloved disciple, I am the one who saw these things, this passage looks just like that. He's saying, I, there was an eyewitness, there was an eyewitness there, and the eyewitness is telling you the truth. And most commentators or most scholars would say that this is the author saying, I was that witness. I was the one standing there who saw it. <clears throat> Which I think is is the correct answer. I think the author who is John was standing there at the cross and saw it happen. But he he is it really important to John to say that even these small events are fulfilling Scripture. They're fulfilling what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so he says this in verse 36, For these things, the things that just happened, the not breaking of the bones and the piercing of Jesus' side, these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures. Not a bone of him shall be broken. One quote. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. A second quote. He has two quotations. The first one is not a direct quotation that we have exactly from anywhere in the Old Testament, but there's several texts that people point to for um, thinking that maybe that's the spot that he's referring to. I think both are good, and I actually think both John probably had both in mind. Um, They're both very close to what John says there, and they're both telling different dimensions of what's going on with Jesus in this moment. The first is Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a a psalm of David when he pretends to be mad before the king of Bimelech. And so when David does that, he, he sings this psalm. And it says this near the end of the psalm. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Interesting. So what does that psalm say about Jesus? It's saying that Jesus is the righteous one. The righteous one. And that this moment of his bones not being broken, even in his death, is a symbol and a sign of God's protection on his life. That God, even in his death, though he let his son die to pay for sin, still was was proclaiming Jesus' righteousness. Because as, as David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, while well, Jesus has just been through many afflictions, and yet all his bones were kept and not one of them broken. That could be one spot. So that if you have your notes, that's one of the two references there on no, no bones broken. The second is um, really related to the context of what's going on. What is everything John is saying about? It's about Passover. Where's the other no-bones-broken passage? Well, it's in Exodus 12, when the Lord is giving the instructions for how Passover should operate. He says this about the Lamb. This is in verse... I'll keep going. I'll find it. But but the point is that the lamb is meant in Exodus 12 to be the lamb that they've raised, the lamb that they have let live with them, and that they have had, uh, had with them. <clears throat> and it says this in verse 46. It is to be eaten in a single house. This is all about Passover. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. So two passages now. One, Psalm 34, talking about Jesus as the righteous one. But what is Exodus 12 talking about? It's talking about Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb. Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb. Why is he the perfect Passover lamb? Because he is spotless, blemishless, and his bones are not broken, which is in Exodus 12, verse 46. It is the requirement for the Passover lamb. None of its bones shall be broken. What is this showing? It's showing that Jesus is fulfilling Passover. The Passover that was once a lamb, was once a spotless, blemish free lamb, is now Jesus, who is spotless, blemishless, and he also has no bones broken. And in the context of everything we're reading with John, John has Passover hanging over his mind. that Remember, Jesus is being slaughtered on the day of preparation of the lambs. When the lambs are being prepared for Passover, Jesus is dying in the Gospel of John. It's important to remember. So John has these two fulfillments, even the smallest details. John's saying the Lord is showing who Jesus was, the perfect Passover lamb, the righteous afflicted one. And then he gives a second verse, a second quotation. And this is the one replying to the blood and water. Remember, Jesus is pierced. And it says, blood and water flowed out of him. And it says in this verse, They shall look on him whom they pierced. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Which is a quote on on the pierced section of your notes. The quote is from Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12. Remember I told you that the water is a clear reference to the Spirit. Well, listen to the quotation from 12. All we read in John is, They shall look on him who is pierced. Now, when you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, you've got to go back and read the Old Testament passage. Because that explains what you're you're reading about. When you just see that, you just think, oh, okay, it's a prophecy that was fulfilled because there was a piercing. And the pierce explains the prophecy. But listen, John has just pulled a small segment out of that verse. Listen to what this verse says. Verse 10 of Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me Whom they have pierced. Even in the quote from Zechariah, it's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit. Which is probably when blood and water pours out of the pierced hole in Jesus' side. John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, thinks of Zechariah 12. The pouring out of the Spirit on the one who was pierced. Now, here's what's interesting who's the one speaking? In, John, in Zechariah 12 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem that's obviously the Lord talking about pouring out his own spirit what does the Lord say? John has changed it uh, slightly in John's quotation says they shall look on him whom they pierce in Zechariah it says the Lord is going to pour out the house, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication So that they will look on me, whom they have pierced. The Lord is saying that he's going to be pierced. He will be the one pierced. Again, John chose this verse intentionally and specifically. Why? Well, because of what he believes about Jesus. He believes Jesus is God. And so he can take that verse That says, they will look on me whom they have pierced, the Lord speaking about himself. And he applies it to Jesus, saying Jesus is God when he is pierced. Jesus is the fulfillment of God, saying they're going to look on me whom they've pierced. And of course, the Spirit will be poured out from him. Going on, I'll skip the rest of chapter 12, but still all in that vein. If you read Zechariah 13, it opens this way, still on the water language. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. It's talking about cleansing from the water, the waters of the fountain, the Holy Spirit. That's Zechariah 13, 1. John is is brilliant, literarily. He's, He's a brilliant writer, as he quotes from the Old Testament and applies the realities of it to Jesus. That he knows Jesus is fulfilling these things. Jesus is the Lord who says, They will look on me whom they pierced. And out of his side will come that spirit of grace and of supplication. Out of his side will come that fountain. So like I said, I have no doubt that was a real thing that blood and water came out, but it's highly theological as well, when John reflects on it. Verse 38 of John chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. Why was he a secret disciple? for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. What's lost in this little verse, if we just fly over it, is how much Joseph must have risked to do that. Remember that Joseph is probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He's very wealthy. He has a lot of status. He has a place among the people. He's got influence, clearly, if he can gain access to Pilate. right? He's got a lot of authority and power. And of course, who's he afraid of? He's afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why? Well, in John 9, we saw what happens to anyone who believes in Jesus. You're put out of the synagogue. You're put out of community. So Joseph, who was a secret disciple... Because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. What does he do? He puts it all on the line to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. The the secret disciple makes himself known to the community. If you don't think everyone would have known that he came and asked for the body, I mean, everyone was consumed with what was happening with Jesus. The leadership, the crowds, they would have known what would have happened to Jesus. And not only that, remember what Jesus is being tried for. Jesus is being tried for treason. He's being tried as an enemy of Caesar, the king of the Jews, a false king. You think it's smart to go to Rome and say, hey, can I have that traitor king's body? There's a good chance that Rome might say, man, maybe this person's in league with them. Maybe we should crucify this one too. Joseph puts everything on the line to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. His reputation, his standing in the community, his very life. And this secret disciple makes himself known when it counts. He spent his life in the life of Jesus being afraid of being his disciple. He says he was a disciple, but he was a seeker one. He was afraid. And now, in the actual death of Jesus, he lets his true colors show. And he asks Pilate for the body so that he can honor Jesus in his death. Pilate gave permission, probably shows how Little Pilate actually thought of the charge. If he had really believed Jesus to be a true traitor to Rome, you can almost guarantee he would not have given the body over. What happened? We find another secret disciple. So Joseph came and took away Jesus' body, and Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, all the way back in John 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Nicodemus, the other secret disciple who came by night, and the same thing in the death of Jesus reveals who he really is. He was a teacher of Israel, remember John 3 says. that He was a a Pharisee, a well-known man. And again, he puts it on the line to honor Jesus in his death bringing the burial spices and it's interesting because he brings about it says about 100 pounds 100 pounds of spices to bury Jesus with one commentator I read said if, if you think about uh, the anointing of Jesus with the gift of the oil that's poured out on his feet that was maybe 300 denarii uh, 100 pounds of spice would be like 30,000 this was fit for a king. Nicodemus brings the spices as a tribute to the king, Jesus, and buries him like a king. Also remember that they're about to celebrate Passover. Now granted, maybe they had their servants do it, I don't know. The text says that Nicodemus and Joseph did it. So. That's all I have to go on. But they were both very well off. They were both men of means. It's true they could have had their servants wrap Jesus up and bury him and and do all the things that they wanted to do. But remember also that if if Joseph and Nicodemus touched Jesus's body at all, they would not have been able to celebrate Passover because they were defiled by touching a dead body. They even gave up their right to set to to the Passover. Ceremony by preparing Jesus' body if they did so. These were true disciples, men of courage, who came out when it mattered. And what's odd is that John himself is interesting. There's a switch here that we'll get to later in John 20, but I think it's worth noting when we see the faith and the courage of Nicodemus and Joseph The secret disciples come out and make themselves known to everyone that they are disciples of Jesus by the way they care for his body. And what do the disciples who've been walking with him in his life do? It says in John 20 that they met in a secret room. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews. Joseph and Nicodemus are held up as the counterpoint to Jesus' lifelong disciples. And it's a reminder that you can have a moment of failure. You can have something that you did wrong, and, and all of a sudden you can become a, an example of faith. Like Joseph and Nicodemus, who were wrong to, to pretend they didn't believe in Jesus during his lifetime, and yet in his death they came willing. Courageous to accept that they were believers in Jesus, and yet the disciples who had walked with them, when all was well and all was safe, they went in fear and hid in their rooms when Jesus appeared to them again. These men were heroes, and who knows what happened to their reputation, to their standing to their place in society, but they loved Jesus and they thought he deserved a burial fit for him. Nicodemus giving him a king's burial with the 100 pounds of spices, and of course, as we'll read, Joseph laying him in his own tomb. Also, this was not something men did. Women were the ones who prepared bodies for burial. For men to do it was extremely rare and unlikely. These men went out of their way to do everything they could to honor Jesus, who they believed to be the Messiah. It says, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. John doesn't tell us this, but the other Gospels do that it was Joseph's tomb. Joseph owned the tomb. It was his family tomb. And no one had used it yet. So he makes space for Jesus there. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Remember the prophecy. It doesn't mention it here in John, but remember the prophecy in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant prophecy that in his death he would be laid with a rich man. Right? Not the common grave not the common grave which is what would have been expected for those who had been crucified that they would be buried in an unmarked grave thrown together the bodies of these three crucified men worthless traitors terrorists they would have all been buried together in one unmarked pit and yet isaiah 53 says that the suffering servant will be buried in a rich man's And Jesus here, by the love and care of Joseph of of Arimathea, is buried in a rich man's tomb, just like the prophecy had said. That's where we end tonight. Still awaiting the resurrection. Sitting in the sadness of the disciples, even these great secret disciples who came out to be courageous had no idea what was about to transpire. They simply wanted to honor Jesus in his death. They had no idea that anything else was coming. For all Joseph knew, Jesus would, his body would just be laid in his tomb until Joseph himself went to join him. And yet John is convinced, he's assured, he's an eyewitness to tell us that these things all happened to fulfill prophecy. That the Lord had long been at work, had long known the plan that Jesus was headed to this moment. That Jesus had been on this path to lay down his life from the very beginning and that none of his bones would be broken. That they would look on the one who they pierced, and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. The Lord had set the details in motion. And that's the paradox we're left with, isn't it? That this great injustice, this great evil that happened to Jesus at the hands of wicked men was also somehow the plan of God, that he had ordained for his son to pay for redemption for all of us. We should be encouraged by the example of Joseph and Nicodemus who tried to do the right thing, despite in their minds and in their eyes that there was nothing good to come of it for them personally. No idea that Jesus was going to be resurrected. No idea that there was going to come some redemption from it. Just their grief and sadness over the lost Messiah, who they thought was. And their hope and desire to honor him in his death. But it's also a reminder, both for those disciples who lived with and during his life and these secret disciples who made themselves known in these last moments that we can't be scared of the faith we profess. We cannot live in fear of what God has called us to as disciples. We cannot live in anxiety and worry about the one who has called us and being called by his name. We should be proud to bear the name of Jesus, unashamed, unafraid, to be his disciples, no matter who might come against us, the Jewish leaders in their day, our leaders today, friends that might ridicule us, society as a whole that might hate us. As Jesus said, the world will hate you on account of me. cannot let any of that stand in the way of admitted of, of admitting openly our faith in the Messiah, of admitting openly our trust in him, and of the fact that he has called us by name. He has called us for his purposes, for his will, and that we are grateful and blessed to be called by that name. Let me bless you tonight a second. Lord thank you for these six people before me that I love Lord I pray now for all of us we all have moments where we're quiet quiet about our faith quiet about um, what you've done for us Lord would you give us the strength and the courage to openly admit that our lives have been forever changed by you. Would you give each one of us the strength and courage to admit that as your disciples, you have changed us irrevocably. You've changed us in a way that has captured us. Would you help us to share that reality with others, share that reality with those who need to hear what you have accomplished and what you have done. And Lord, I just pray that a blessing over each person in this room tonight, that they'd be filled with courage, filled with faith tonight, even in the midst of this dark world that so often hates us as Christians, as people who bear your name. Would you help us to be brave and courageous, stand strong and true in your name? Help us to do that tonight, each one. We pray all these things in that name by which we've been called, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here.